0: true story. Dave Hollis um, grew up in Southern California in a really devout uh, Christian home. And um, they went to church every single week and went to church a lot. And uh, after he graduated from, from high school, he went to a Christian college there in Southern California. And and after graduating from there, he met this beautiful young lady who had moved from the Midwest uh, to get a job as an assistant at Miramax Movies there. Uh, She too had grown up, um, you know, in a very devout Christian family as well. In fact, her father was a minister, and they got married, and they had some kids, and and they would go to church, just kind of like you and I, and and, um, Dave's job was just taken off. I mean, he was incredibly successful, and in his early 40s, by the time he was, he was even that young, he had already become, at Disney, a head of their global distribution for their movies. In fact, he was so highly regarded there at Disney that it was thought at that time, about 10 years later, that he possibly would take over Bob Iger's spot as CEO at Disney. He hung out with Dwayne Johnson, went to the Oscars every year. But if you were to talk to his friends, his friends would tell you that Dave would often talk about how he was just incredibly unfulfilled in the job that he was, he was doing. Well, about that same time in the, in the early 40s, is, um, you know, being in his early 40s, his wife, Rachel, um, kind of stumbled in on becoming a uh, social media influencer. She just started posting some of the things that she was struggling with, with life, you know, just talking about stuff as, you know, having three kids and how her body's changed and the struggles with that and the processing and the other challenges. And, and she would just share authentically what was going on in her life and how she was processing some of that. And, and it really connected with a lot of people. And so she began to kind of grow in her followership. In fact, at the zenith of it all, she had about 2 million followers, uh, she, she wrote a book called Girl, Wash Your Face, and it was published by a Christian publishing company, and it was a bestseller. And she began to make a lot of money, and not only just for her books, but also from the subscriptions and the social media and some of the things that she began to do with that. Well, Dave saw this as a perfect opportunity to get out of what he was doing and, and leave Disney and leave LA altogether. And they decided, let's, let's leave the rat race so they ended up moving to the Austin area to a small little community called Dripping Springs because you can you know uh, you can build a business there and so he was going to help his wife build her brand and build her her company and you can do social media being a social media influencer anywhere and so they they started doing that and it just continued to take off and and grow. Well, the authenticity of it all began to kind of change. So. Dave went and he hired some communication gurus, social media gurus to kind of oversee the platforms. And and so the authenticity began to have kind of a storyboard behind the authenticity. In fact, like one time, Dave took all, they had four kids at the time. They took four kids. He took four kids by himself. Um, to a business trip to help you know build the brand and build the company and and so he's putting on social media the chaos and the craziness and all the experiences of everything it was great for social media and everything like that and and so he did that and he came back and but nowhere along there did they ever did he ever express on social media that he had a nanny with him the whole time right but everybody's commenting, "What amazing dad!" I can't believe that you're doing that all by yourself, and all those things. And you know, which is kind of a little bit of the picture of the social media world, right? What is reality, and what we kind of experience, and what we see in the screen? Well, over time, Rachel and Dave, their marriage began to begin to crumble. They begin to compete against each other, feel a sense of insecurity against each other, and their marriage began to begin to spiral. Now, they had put on social media everything else. They were incredibly authentic, maybe sometimes sharing too much, you know, sometimes. But they were authentic on everything except for their relationship. And so when they finally did get divorced, they had to, of course, put it online. And so they did, and they instantly lost credibility. People would say things like, hey, you know, you are like this self-help guru, and they kind of, you know, pronounce themselves or kind of cater to this idea that they could help you and with some self-help stuff and so here you know people are commenting that hey you're a self-help person and you can't even help yourself and and people will say well you know what here you are just talking about authentic and how authentic we're supposed to be but you haven't been authentic about this piece in your life and and so their business begin to to crumble Well, Dave tried to salvage something, and so they're divorced. And and so now he's trying to do this whole self-help thing with social media and become an influencer for, for single dads. And so he's, you know, doing, um, putting all those posts and giving, you know, uh, some advice. And he tried to write some books, but none of these things really began to stick. And he became very obsessed with the way that people, uh, with what people thought about him. And so every time he would do a post, he's always going back and looking at the post, reading the post, all the posts, even all the ugly negative posts. And he began to just begin to really internalize what people were saying about him. And his life was beginning to get out of control. In fact, at one time he did this live event in his backyard and and he's just going on for two hours. It was a two hour deal, just talking into the camera and he's getting mad and angry at people for not buying his stuff. He has a little four-year-old kid and comes around in the back because you know this was kind of a family thing because it was all about the family and the authenticity of family life and so his little four-year-old would come up and little Noah would come up to him and said it was early in the morning and dad had been out there for a while talking and and the little boy was hungry he just wanted breakfast and said dad can you make us some pancakes and he says not right now not right now I'm too busy talking to my friends on the internet and so the son would go back and they would come back because he's still hungry right and um, you know, and then he, he looks at his son, and he says, to his four-year-old boy, he's like, you just need to get alive and, and like leave. And that's where he had, you know, where his life had kind of spun out of control. Well, one year later, Dave was found. He was found dead with a with a mixture of cocaine, ethanol, and fentanyl in his system. He had OD'd. Now I tell you the story, and it's this tragic story, and it's a big story. And maybe our stories may not be necessarily as big as that story, but I think we can all kind of connect with their story. I think one is those of us who grew up in a Christian home and Christian environment, we can kind of connect with this because I believe that one of the things that that, um, we fail to really understand is how beautiful and wonderful the gift of salvation is to us on a daily basis. See, most of us you know, some of us who are Christ followers, there was probably a time that we, you know, stepped across the line of faith and, and we received the gift of eternal life, the gift of salvation. And there's no doubt in my mind that there was probably, there was a time where, where Dave and Rachel, they, they had that moment in their life where they received the eternal gift of salvation through the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ. They understood that they weren't, you know, that they needed a savior and, and God gave them a savior through Jesus Christ. And you accept the free gift of eternal life. You can have it. so you just receive it, and they, they received it. But oftentimes, what tends to happen is, is that when we, we kind of move from this, this whole idea that salvation is something that happens in the future. That's like in a future date, when Jesus comes, and he comes to judge the living and the dead. And that will be a date that those who receive the, the gift of eternal life have eternal life, okay? And those who don't, don't, but that's a future deal. And so we tend to think, even if we've received that gift, that's somewhere in the future. Not recognizing that that has implications for how we live today. And so I'm going to talk about that a little bit today, because I believe that it, that, um, you know, that the gift of salvation is one of those gifts we don't make enough of about and of in our lives every single day. And it's so, so crucial because it has implications for our, for our lives. We're gonna go and we're gonna look back at Luke chapter two and we're gonna look at a guy named Simeon. Caleb talked about him a couple of weeks ago. I wanted to kind of hone in a little bit about him and, and particularly what he said about Jesus. Now, there was a, about 40 days after Jesus was was born, um, Mary and Joseph took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, just a kind of fulfillment of the law. So they're going into Jerusalem and into the temple area, and they are met by this this guy named Simeon. Well, let's kind of look at him and see what he has to say in Luke chapter 2, beginning with verse 25. We're gonna go 25 through 35 here in this little section here. So at that time, there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon, he was righteous and devout and was eagerly waiting for the Messiah. So this was a man who was, was righteous and he was devout. And we see that he was waiting for the Messiah, which means that he was also the person of scripture. Um, at this time, there was no New Testament. New Testament was written about you know, um, 20, 30 plus years after Jesus rose from the dead. And so here, the scriptures were the Old Testament. And the Old Testament is about the law and the prophets and the history of Israel. And we see through some of the prophets that would speak about there would be this coming king. This coming king who would come and rescue uh, Israel. And so Simeon, being a, a godly man, would have known his scriptures and seen those, those prophecies and those promises that God has given about a Messiah, waited expectantly. God, when's the Messiah going to come? When's the king going to come? When is he going to come and rescue Israel? So the Holy Spirit was upon him. And the Holy Spirit had revealed to him that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Messiah. And this was the day. So in verse 27, that day the Spirit led him to the temple. So when Mary and Joseph came to present the baby Jesus to the Lord as the law required, Simeon was there. Now you can imagine, you know, this was going to be another one of those, uh, those uh, accounts of, of Mary and Joseph that was just going to boggle their mind, right? They had their own experience with the, the angel Gabriel, kind of telling them what's going on, and, and Mary had her experience with her cousin Elizabeth and all of that with John, and, and uh, Jesus was born, and some shepherds came in, told them about this incredible thing, about the angels telling them, you know, to go and see the Messiah that was born there in Bethlehem. And here you have about 40 days later, they're going in, and here comes, out of the blue, here comes this guy named Simeon. And so Simeon comes and he took the child in his arms and he just praised God. I bet, I wonder, I wish I could be there in those times because I wonder if Simeon just starts to weep in just absolute joy. The Lord promised him that he would not die until he sees the Messiah. Can't wait to see the Messiah. God's going to keep his promise. I can't wait till he fulfills his promise. I can't wait, I can't wait, I can't wait. And here is that day that very specific day. So he takes him in his arms and he just praises God. And so Simeon goes and he says here in verse 29, he says, Sovereign Lord, now let your servant die in peace as you have promised. That you have promised through the prophets as you have promised me to have this experience. I can die in peace because I am in the midst of your promise and your promise keeping of the Messiah here in his arms, right? So verse 30, he goes on, he says, I've seen your salvation. That's amazing. a couple of things just to kind of put in your head and we'll just kind of move on real quick. I've seen your salvation. I love the fact that salvation is Jesus. It's not just what Jesus does but who he is. And that's going to be very important when we think about how important uh, salvation is to us every single day because salvation is Jesus, which you have prepared for all people, for everybody, Jews, Gentiles, you know, upper class, lower class, different cultures for all people. Verse thirty-two goes on. He is the light to reveal God to the nations. He is the glory of your people, Israel. Praise be to God. Right. So you can imagine Joseph and Mary just kind of listening to this and kind of going, "Hey, that's kind of cool. That's our kid. That's 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 awesome." In fact, in verse thirty-three. Luke goes on, he says that Jesus' parents were amazed at what was being said about him, right? Now, I mean, if you had kids and, you know, if somebody came up to you that was a devout and righteous person and, and they came and just said incredible things about your kids, you're probably going to be kind of like, wow, hey, that's pretty cool, right? Well, that's the good news. Well, in verse 34, it goes on, then Simeon blessed them and then he looks at Mary. I can imagine he's just looking Mary right in her eyes the baby's mother and he says this that's all amazing that's all true but Mary this child your child is destined to cause many in Israel to fall and many others to rise he has been sent as a sign from God but many will oppose your son There's going to be people who are going to hate your baby. In other words, that's tough. Mama's out there. You're going to feel that. You know, you know, Mama Bear comes out when you know you feel that somebody didn't like your kid. But Simeon says that hey, your son, Jesus, the Savior, he's going to save, but he's going to be the destined. He is destined to cause many in Israel to fall, and many will oppose him. In fact. In verse 35, Simeon goes on and he says this. As a result, here's the thing, of your baby, and the result of, of him, the deepest thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your very soul, Mary. So Simeon gives Mary a picture of this understanding of what it means to rescue Israel, what this baby, this Savior, this Messiah is going to do. You know, we've talked about it here a lot. It's like, you know, people thought, and they did, like, that the Messiah was going to come and kick some Roman can, kick them out of there, restore any corruption that's within the, the priestly order, and set up like a real good government, all right? But what, what Simeon is, is basically letting us know and let Mary know at that time is... That's not the salvation that God has in mind because the salvation that humanity needs is not external shuffling of different people, different places, different things, doing different things that ultimately the rescuing that is going to happen right in here. And what this boy is going to do when he becomes a man is he's gonna bring that stuff out that we tend to hide in there. And when he brings it out, and he brings our deepest thoughts out in the open before the Lord God, there's going to be some who are going to, you know, hide, get mad, get angry, crucify him, run away from him, all sorts of stuff that we do even to this very day. When God brings about the truth and the reality, what resides deeply within our hearts— even the things that you and I, we tend to kind of stuff in there because we don't really like looking at it. But here's the thing. What's amazing about Jesus is, is kind of this. You know, Karl Marx said that, um, you know, religion is the opiate of the masses. The people who have religion in their life, well, they have religion just as a coping mechanism for their life. It's to numb them from the issues and the pains of the world. But here's the deal, which I think Karl Marx misunderstood about Jesus. Jesus didn't come to be an opiate. Jesus came, actually, to be smelling salt. Do you know what smelling salt does? Smelling salt wakes up people. It's to wake us up. It doesn't make us slumber. And to wake us up to the primal reality of our sin and our helplessness and the fact that we can't seem to get over our own sin. To bring that into awareness of the depths of our heart and the depths of our thoughts. And it's a crazy thing to think of the reason why Jesus came in this world. We, we tend to think that, yeah, Jesus came in this world to save us, which is true. But have you ever thought of the fact that, that Jesus came into this world to save us from him? Jesus came into this world to save you from him. Who's Jesus? He's God. He's he's the perfect God. And the perfect God demands perfect righteousness. Because not to do so would be a perversion of righteousness and a perversion of justice. To think that this child was born in order to save me from him. Because what we see in Christ is we see a perfect God demanding perfection to come into this world as a perfect man to give the perfect sacrifice for our gross imperfections to save us from him. And Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount said some things that were just really, really strong. In fact, this week I was having a great conversation with Ralph Scudder. And we were, we were talking about these things of some of the things that, you know, Jesus says that, that if you've read them, you've kind of went through them. And, you know, maybe you, you've stopped and you, you looked at that and you went, ooh, ouch, wait a minute. I don't know if I like that. Well, I don't know. I don't really like it. Let's just keep going. And so some of those things are found right there on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. In, in Matthew chapter 5, uh, verse 20, Jesus says this. Jesus says this. He's talking to people just like you and me. He says, hey, if Jesus was here, you know, I mean, back in those days, Jesus said, you know, with everybody there on the Sermon on the Mount, he said to them, he says, but I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of God unless your righteousness is like way off the charts, you're, you will never, ever enter the kingdom of God. How many of you guys have ever read that, heard that and kind of went, "Ooh, I don't like that. Why do we not like that? Because we know where we lie on the level of our own righteousness. We don't like that. Not only that, but we get a little bit angry, a little bit mad. Come on, God, give me a break. Nobody's perfect all of these things. And or we blame and blame shift and all of these things. And, and we act like a, uh, you know, like an immature young adult saying to their parents, if you love me, you'll keep paying the bills and you'll keep allowing me to do whatever I want to do and just mooch off of you. Right? We say that to God. God, if you're loved, then you should just automatically whatever. But Jesus said, I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. I don't know, it makes you feel incredibly unsettled. Well, he says in verse 48, just settle in a little bit more. But you are to be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. You're to be perfect. You, I'm to be perfect just as God is perfect. All right, so... How many in this room are absolutely 100% perfect? Perfect in love, perfect in thought, perfect in everything that you've done your whole life. How many of you, when it comes to zealousness of the Lord and following the Lord, your righteousness by way far exceeds you know, the Pharisees, Pharisees' zealousness and dotting their I's and crossing their T's and all that? All right. All right. We're all in trouble, aren't we? All right. That's what it means to need a savior. That's what it means to need a savior. Jesus didn't come into this world to give us self-help. If you get good at self-help, you, you would have just, you know, said, hey, you know, do this, do that, and pull yourself up by the bootstraps, and you can do it. But every single one of us in this room are, are like hands down kind of going, no, not there. No, I know my own heart. I know all the things I've done. You know, and there are things I've forgotten about that I'm glad to forget about as well. You know, that's what it means to be to need a savior. We need to be saved from this. That's Jesus's point. He was a smelling salt to the religious community and to people thinking, Well, I'm better than them. I'm not as bad as them. I haven't done these things. You know, I'm religious, go to church and all that. And Jesus says, No, 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 no. For all of you who've kind of fallen asleep around religion, and being better than other people, let me give you a little smelling salt. Be perfect. Your heavenly father's perfect. Your righteousness needs to exceed the things of you know, the Pharisees and the religious people. And we all go, oh no. And Jesus goes, oh yeah. But guess what? I came into this world to save you. Amen. To be saved means you need to be saved right? If you didn't need to be saved, like I said, you just need some, like, pointers. We don't need pointers. We actually really need to be saved. Romans three twenty three. Paul said it like this, for everyone has sinned. Nobody raised their hands. You guess what? We're all equal in this room because everyone has sinned. We've all fall short of God's glorious standard. In verse 24 and 25, he goes on and he says, yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. Now think about it, right? First, last sentence, we have all fallen short of God's glory. We have all sinned, yet it changes from the we to who? Yet God, not us, but God in God's grace. And it's God who makes us right in his sight? And God did this through God becoming flesh, Emmanuel, through Jesus Christ, when God freed us from the penalty. Okay, now we're back to us, our sins. Who did the work? Christ did the work. None of us can do the work. Salvation is one of the most humbling things in the world because to be saved means you're helpless. And that we need to be saved. But God in his grace and his love did that. Instead of, as it says in Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah 53, that, you know, the Messiah would be crushed. And so instead of God in his infinite righteousness, instead of crushing us, he takes it out and crushes his son. That's how much we need to be saved. That a good man needed to die for not so good people. But he did this because he loves us. So the whole tension, we do attention, tension. Love, hey, no big deal. Wait a minute. Where's the justice? Well, justice, well, wait, wait a minute. Let's not be so harsh, all these things. We, we're all a mess in those things. But Jesus and God in his infinite wisdom takes care of both of that. The just gives up his life for the unjust to take the penalty for, for us. At the moment, he is absolutely perfect God and all, and simultaneously perfect judge and simultaneously perfect savior expressed in perfect love it's amazing in verse 35 he goes on paul says for god presented jesus as the sacrifice for our sin he took the punishment for us and people like you and me are made right with god when they believe that jesus sacrificed his life shedding his blood Now, let me tell you, there will become a time where Jesus will return and Jesus will set everything up and there will be a sense of judgment between uh, the living and the dead. And those who accepted this free gift of, of eternal life have it. Those who do not, they will stand before a righteous God and they will be judged on the merits of the way that they live their life. Did you know that you can't earn your way to heaven? But there's only one person who's ever done that. And his name was Jesus Christ. The rest of us haven't. Okay? We can go and say, hey, you know what? I'm going to do this you know, on my own. But we're all going to stand before a righteous God, and he's going to do the litany of things, the things that we've done wrong by him and by humanity as well. And then we're going to be cast out in the presence of God, by which we will get what we've always wanted, to be left alone by God. Do you know what really hell is? Hell is basically getting exactly what we want, okay, without God giving you the things that he's been giving you all this time that you felt like he should give you even though you could care less about him. Hell is just complete absence of God and the goodness of God. All good things come from God, In the moment of judgment, God basically takes all the joys and all the goodness of the things of this world. And he, he gives it all to, to those who have professed their faith in Jesus Christ for all eternity. For those who didn't, they are judged and they're cast out into darkness. Now I say that not to like, you know, oh man, now he's getting all, you know, whatever revivalist on me. I'm just express, expressing the reality of this. And you would say, that's not fair. It's not fair. Well, it's not fair for a little baby to come into this world to give up his life for us. But he did it. And guess what? You know what salvation, you know, you know how easy salvation is? Even, salvation is so easy. There's only a, a few things that kind of go with salvation. Number one is self-awareness. You know what self-awareness is? I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. I, I, I am a sinner before a righteous God. That's just self aware I'm not saying anything. I'm not, no, that's not a, you know, self-deprecation. I'm just facing reality about who, who I am. That's it. And at the same time, in that, I'm helpless to that. I try every single day to try to be perfect, but I can't. I'm just, I just recognize. I'm just an, a realist in that. And then God, in his infinite grace and love, sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be the sacrifice for me. And all I need to do is receive that gift from him. That's it. Just receive it. I recognize that I need to be saved. Thank you for saving me. And you say, wait a minute, man, I just, I don't, I don't you know, I don't know if I have enough time to be able to you know, work that out and all that stuff. There's only one thing for you to do in your life. You were created by God in order to have a relationship with him. More important than your career, more important than your family, more important than your hobbies is your relationship with the Lord. It's the one thing you should be hammering out for your whole life. And hopefully, you can come to a place by which in 15 seconds, you can change the trajectory of eternal life like that, by just self-awareness, recognizing the need for a Savior, you've been given a Savior, and you just accept that gift. If you think about all the years of your life, times all the hours that those years represent, times all the minutes that those represent— times all the, the seconds that's re, uh, represented, divided by 15, because maybe taking 15 seconds to make that. That's how many chances you have in order to say, I have self-awareness, that I need a savior. God's given that to me. Thank you very much. That's God's grace of how, op- how many opportunities he gives you to take that. My hope is, is if you never have, that you would receive it. You would receive it. But don't just receive it. My goal for you is not just for you to receive it just so that way you can have eternal life because your salvation isn't necessarily into eternal life. Your, your salvation, you know, isn't, your salvation is really ultimately from the sin that, was, that is within us that keeps us from having an intimate relationship with the one who created us for, and for us to have a relationship with him forever. That, That God, ultimately, when we think about salvation, remember, who is salvation? Jesus is salvation. That ultimately, we find the ultimate salvation in our life in our relationship with the Lord. Yes, through his blood sacrifice, we were made right with God, by which we have eternal life. But the good stuff in that salvation is in that relationship with Jesus Christ. So here's the thing that Jesus does for us every single day, because it's not only that we need to be saved from God, Jesus also came to save you from you. Jesus came to save me from Tyler. Let me ask you a question. If, if I were to come to you, and, you, know, and, um, and, I, you know, and I said to you, hey, you know what? I can't go a day at all without drinking alcohol. I can't. I just can't go a whole day. Every, you know, every day I, I, I have to drink alcohol. I, there's not a day that goes by that I can't absolutely not have a drink would you say to me, Tyler, you have a problem? You would. Let me ask you a question. Can you go a whole day without sinning? Can you go a whole day without sinning? No. Why? Because we're all addicted to sin. And then, you know, we can try all we want to try to get rid of it. And we do, right? you know, business things, business books, and all that, you know, they say, who's the hardest person to manage at work? It's yourself. How many of you guys, like, try, like, a gazillion type of time management stuff? You know? How many of you, at the end of the day, just feel like there's a sense of uneasiness that you didn't do this day completely right? Yeah, we need to be safe from ourselves, one of the things I love about being around uh, my, my recovering addict friends is they give me a window of the need for, and the reality of the need for recovery of my own addiction towards sin. And when I see my friends who are calling up friends to help them to get through a hard spot, you know, with their addictions... And uh, they're doing all the things that they need to do in order to be free from that. It's, it's just amazing because I realize that's what it is. The body of Christ, when we get together, is to get together with a bunch of sin addicts to keep encouraging each other, to keep faithfully following Christ. And when we feel that moment of tension between wanting to give in to the things of this world, we have people there to help us to, to continue to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because every single day we, 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 we struggle with the desire to want to be selfish, to be prideful, to be insecure, um, to have vengeance. We struggle with that every single day. In fact, this is nothing new. Scripture is very clear about this reality as well. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 17 says this, the human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? Have you ever really thought and spent some time to really kind of analyze your own heart? you ever thought about like you know you're thinking about your heart and where your heart condition is and then you know somebody looks at you and go you go why are they looking at me why are they looking at me like that do i have something I have something on my shirt do you feel a sense of insecurity well maybe they're just jerks in the way that they're looking at me you know your mind just starts going all over the place and and it's easy just to sit there and kind of think about your heart and how easy your heart goes left or right and it's all over the place Why? Because the heart is deceitful. It just wants to keep going to, when I want to go right, it wants to go left. You know, when God wants me to go up, it wants to go down. In fact, Paul mentioned the same struggle in his book, uh, in in his letter to the Romans. Chapters one through five, he was talking about how we all need to be, we all need to be saved. Doesn't matter who we are. And then six through eight, he kind of just talks more about how this condition within us That now, even though we may be followers of Christ and we have our eternal security, we are right with God, we still struggle with our inward flesh. And so this is what he says in in Romans chapter uh, 7, verse 15. Paul said, I don't really understand myself. I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. Anybody been there? Anybody felt that? Why do I keep doing this stupid thing? I don't want to do this anymore. I don't even understand myself. I don't even like this. Why am I doing this? Why am I thinking this way? You know? Well, he goes on later on there in uh, verse 24. He says, oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Martin Luther, who was a great reformer, you know, he was a, he was a priest before he just basically shattered the whole Christian world back in the the 1500s. The guy, you know, recognized that, you know, he he just had this works, bad works theology that was kind of rampant within their theology within the church. And and so he just felt this sense of angst because he really internally looked at himself and goes, man, I keep messing up. He would go to the confession and he would go to to another priest that would hear his confession. He would you know, give all his confession and everything. Then he would walk right out and then prideful thought, lustful thought, thing, all these sorts of thoughts would come in his mind. And we'd get frustrated. He would turn right around and he'd go right back into the confessional. And the priest who did his confession is like, Martin, chill out. And Martin goes, I can't chill out because I know what's in my heart. To say to chill out is to cop out on what's the reality of what's going on inside of me. He was a mess until he actually started reading the Bible he wrote, read Paul's letters, Romans and Galatians and, and Romans 7. I'm just, I'm a mess. I'm a mess. Who, who, who can free me of this? The Savior can, because in verse 25, he goes on. Thank God. The answer is going to church more. The answer is reading by Bible more. The answer is being a better person. The answer is is just in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Lord, save me every day. You know my heart. You know it. God, I'm grateful that even in that you came to this world and you you sacrificed your life for me, and now I have eternal life, but you know the daily struggle that I have. It's weird that we think that, you know, We can't pull ourselves by the bootstraps when it comes to our eternal life, but we can pull ourselves by the bootstraps every single day in our lives. Now we're the same person. And Christ is there to walk us out every single day with us, to give us the wisdom, to make right choices, to give give us the trust, to trust him even when we feel like we wanna do something that we probably shouldn't do. And thank you, Lord. Thank you, thank you, Lord. When John wrote many years after the resurrection of Jesus to a group of people, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Thank you for grace. Martin Luther experienced grace. I can breathe. The reality is I'm a sinner. But the reality is I also have a savior. The reality is I'm not perfect, my heavenly father, but the reality is I have a father and his son that is walking by me to live this life with, to save me from myself. And then in those moments when I choose myself in an unwise way, he forgives me, he allows me to breathe, and I can walk forward. When I think of Dave... I don't know whatever happened in his life, and that was one of the things that just grieved me about Dave Hollis's story. But that moment in his life where he just felt like he had to take control of his own life and not recognizing that he has a Savior. You don't need two million likes. You don't need a million dollars. You just need me. You don't need all these trappings. You don't need all these things. You don't need to even worry or think about what other people think about you because we're all, we're all over the place anyways. Just come to me. That's my hope for you. If you've never accepted the gift, accept the gift. If you've accepted the gift, keep using the gift every single day. And the gift is Jesus himself. Every day we wake up and just say, Lord, you know my heart. You know the choices that I'm going to want to make today. Save me for myself today. Give me the wisdom and let me know that, I'm, that you're with me. And At the end of the day or even during the day, Lord, thank you so much that you love me. And I that was stupid. I shouldn't have done that. But you are still with me. Thank you for that grace. That just saves me when I think about the rest that I can have in my heart and the strength to be able to keep moving forward. We're going to have a time of responding here for you or where you're at to kind of flesh this out a little bit more with the Lord himself. And you can do that right there where you are and pray and just talk to God with what's going on and wrestling and whatever you're wrestling with this or thinking about these things with him. There's communion on the other side just to remind us of the beautiful gift of the grace that God has shown us through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ, for us. Not only just to have our eternal salvation for us, but we have somebody to go through every single day to ask us, to walk us through, to help us, to save us through the day as well. And then we have people on the side here to pray with. If you haven't... You know, if you haven't accepted that gift, I would encourage you to come and talk to those who are on the side here. They would love to walk you through that and pray you through that so you can know for certain when you walk out these doors that you have eternal life. 1 John 5, 11 through 13 says, and this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. And so, Father, as we take this time that your spirit would just kind of work with whatever's going on in our own lives, that you would use it in a way that would move us closer to you. Thank you, God, for lots of things. One is the beauty that we can face reality. We don't have to live in denial. We can live in reality. It hurts. It's not fun. But we can lay those things at your feet for the forgiveness of our sins, and recognizing that by grace, you have saved us. So thank you for that. And so, Father, as we just kind of think through those things, Lord, I pray that you would stir within us the next steps that you would have us to do in our hearts, in our relationships with you. Accept the gift. Use the gift. Lean into you. Be reminded of the grace that we've received in you. Whatever that may be, God, that we would just listen to you. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen.